Well, I'm excited to be with you this morning, and one of the reasons I'm excited is I get to share some good news. That's always fun when you get to share good news with good people. So a couple of weeks ago, we had this crazy idea, like, what if we gave away our cash offering on Easter and encouraged people to give money and funds that would help plant churches among unreached people groups on the very edges of Christendom, so to speak. And uh, we threw out a challenge, 10 churches, about $300 a church, so about $3,000. And we were super excited last week to be able to share that about $7,900 had come in in the first week, which would plant 26 churches. And I had this thought, like, maybe we should stretch and, and encourage people, let's go for 30. Let's, let's try to get a few more. Maybe there's a few people that hadn't given yet. Well, then we checked on Tuesday after the offering had come in, and suddenly there was $11,400 that had been given, which equates to over 38 churches. And I'm still thinking, like, 40? That's a really nice round number. You know, maybe we should just go a little bit. If you haven't participated yet, um, we would encourage you. You can give online securely through our app or through our church website. You can put it on a check. Um, you, can, you can be a part of this still if you want to. And this will be kind of our last day. We'll, we'll shut that down at some point during the week. And, uh, and yet, it is such a celebration that through our Easter gathering and through that offering that was given and through individuals and families saying, yeah, we can plant a church. We could plant several churches together as a congregation, as a family of families. We're planting 38-plus churches together. And so that, I think, is cause for celebration. So go ahead and... And give God some glory for that, because our mission here at Linwood is to reach people for Christ, to give them a place to belong, and to help them grow in their faith. We can do that here in Sioux Falls through partnerships that we have in our community, regionally, nationally, and internationally. And to think about reaching people for Christ, giving them a place to belong, and helping them grow in their faith, planting churches in villages that have never heard the gospel is about as good an example of that as I can imagine. So thank you for being a part of that. We're continuing this week in the middle week of a five-week series titled Desiring God. And we kick this off on Easter Sunday uh, with a look at, at the end of Mark's gospel and the, the centurion's confession in this bottom line that everything changes when we believe, when we truly believe, when we rely upon cling to and trust in Christ, and we make a decision for Him. Everything changes when we believe. And I was thinking about that this past week in relationship to this series and in relationship to this message, and the idea struck me that our desires change. They're part of everything. Our desires change when we believe, when we make Jesus Christ not just Savior, but Lord, our desires begin to change. And I thought back to my life, and I thought back to when I was a young believer, and the things that had been super important to me just prior to accepting Christ gradually changed as I began to follow Him, as I began to spend time in His Word, as I began to spend time with other believers, as I began to learn more from God and from His Word, my desires changed. And the things that were so important to me prior to that, in my BC days, I call them, my before Christ days, started to change. And I started to de not desire the things that I used to desire, materialism and reputation and success and those types of things became less and less important in their worldly senses. And other things like 
closeness to Christ, uh, serving others, uh, desiring to worship Him. I had never, like, church was something we did because it was something we did in my mind growing up for much of my, my young life. And yet when I came into this relationship with Jesus and I made Him my Lord and Savior, I had a desire to worship. Like, I started changing off the secular stations and listening to worship music, and that was something that had never been on my radar before, but I wanted to, I wanted to express my gratitude and my praise to God throughout the week, not just on Sunday. What a novel idea. And so maybe you've heard testimonies or maybe it's your testimony that as soon as you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, everything changed all at once. And you went from being this way to being this way, and it was totally different. For me, it was more gradual. There were seasons and there were changes and there were ebb and flow and there were desires that lingered, maybe unhealthy, unholy desires that lingered and that pop up at the strangest times. And so for me, this was not just a one and done. And for most people that I talk to, it's not just a one and done. It's a, it's a recurring decision. It's a recurring decision to push our desires, to not be led around by them, but to direct them towards God. And so last week, we talked about desiring God above all else, and this idea that desiring God above all else is a daily decision. It's an act of the will. It's not necessarily contingent upon feelings. Sometimes we'll feel like doing it, and other times we will not. And that leads right into today's message, where we're going to talk about desiring God when you don't. When you don't have the feeling, when you don't have the emotion that's pushing you towards God, when things become a little stale, when things become a little less than fresh and exciting, what do you do? How do you desire God when you don't? In the traditional sense of the word, in the sense of the feelings and the emotions behind that desire. What do you do in a dry season? What do you do in a difficult season of life? What do you do when your feelings, your emotions, your desires start to wane? And we're going to focus on Psalm 63 for sort of a lesson from David on this subject, and then we'll look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 as an example of how we see this in a group of people, in a church, in a congregation at Thessalonica. And so those will be our two main scriptures today, and we're going to try to answer that question, what do we do? When we don't want to do anything, what do we do when we don't feel that spiritual? What do we do when the hunger and thirst isn't there that we want to be there? And what do we do when we don't feel the same desire that we felt before? So I'd encourage you to turn to Psalm 63. If you're in the sanctuary here and you want to pick up one of the pew Bibles, they're in the seats in front of you. You can turn to page 899 and follow along there. It's also going to be on the screen. If you're joining us online, I encourage you to get out a Bible if you have one near, near you and read this in your own uh, Bible, but otherwise it will also be on the screens for you. And I want to look at this psalm one chunk at a time, about three or four verses at a time, and, and understand where David is and what's going on in David's life and how he's responding to that circumstance. And so in verse 1 through 4 of Psalm 63, we read these words, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. 
Now, we get a little insight into the setting there at the end of verse 1, and if your Bible has some explanatory notes or something, it'll let you know that this was written when David was in the wilderness of Judah. Now, we don't know why he was in the wilderness of Judah. There were a couple of times in the narrative of David's life where we know that that was the case for him. One time he was kind of on the run from King Saul, who was trying to kill him because David had been anointed as the king, and the standing king didn't care for that. And so Saul was hunting him down, and David was forced to flee into the wilderness of Judah. The other time is when his son Absalom comes in and supplants him as king and sets himself up as king, and David has to flee into the wilderness of Judah. Either one, it's not a happy time, okay? This is not a vacation in the wilderness of Judah. This is a forced exile, essentially, in the wilderness of Judah. He's in a dry and weary land where there is no water, and it's reasonable to assume that he was feeling very alone, that he might even be feeling abandoned by God or by God's people. And it's possible that he even feels forsaken by God, that the anointing that was on him either to be king eventually or to remain king throughout the rest of his life, that that anointing had been removed, that he had been forsaken, that God had turned his back on him. And yet he chooses, he decides, he makes a decision, an act of the will to say earnestly, I will seek you for you are my God. And Warren Wiersbe speaks into this moment. Warren is a great pastor's pastor. He's a great commentary writer for all of the books in the, in the Bible. And he writes on this passage, he says, to be able to say, my God, by faith, transformed David's wilderness experience into a worship experience. To remember whose he was, to remember that God was his God, and to declare that God is His God, even in the desert, even in the wilderness, transformed His wilderness experience into a worship experience. And I believe it can do the same for you. I believe that it can turn your valley into a valley rich with the presence of God. When the emotions have waned, when the feelings aren't there, when you make that decision, that act of the will to say, you are still my God. And we have no better example of this than Jesus Christ Himself. One of the last things that He said on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he addresses him as God, even in that moment when heaven turned away and Jesus was completely and utterly alone, he affirms, my God, my God. And when David affirms, my God, by faith, it transforms his wilderness experience into a worship experience. And then we see in verse 2, David does something interesting. He reminds himself of better days. He reminds himself, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. He's not telling God something God doesn't know. He's reminding himself of something he needs to remember. He's been there. He's seen it. He's had the worship experience. He's seen God's power and glory take over in the sanctuary. He's felt that powerful manifestation of God. He's remembering better days. He's remembering what he has seen and heard. He's witnessing to himself. He's reminding himself what he has seen and what he has heard. And sometimes in these seasons, 
we beat ourselves up and we think, I must have done something wrong. I must have drifted. I must have gotten away from God. And we beat ourselves up. Or maybe we get some help from our enemy, the devil, who whispers in our ears. And so David's reminding himself of better days, and I think he's reminding his enemy of better days. And I have shared the power of affirmations in this setting before. I've preached a whole series titled, What's True About You?, that was meant to equip you with affirmations that would help you remember whose you are, help you remember who you are to God. And so there were four of them that I shared at the end of each message in that series, What's True About You. You can still find this on our website if this resonates with you and you want to go deeper with it. Just go to our website, go to the media page, click on past sermons, go to 2018, the summer of 2018. We did a series on what's true about you. And one of the things that I know is true about me, and I remind myself most when it's hardest to remember this, is that I am a beloved child of God in whom Christ dwells and delights. That is not contingent upon my circumstances. I am safe and secure in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God, which is never in trouble. Even when it feels like it's all crumbling around me, I remember that that is true about me. I am never lost or alone because Jesus is always with me, and He's never lost. That's true about me, whether I feel like it or not. And I am enough. I am enough. I am enough, even when I don't feel like enough, even when I don't feel like I've measured up, even when I don't feel like the sermon packed the punch that I wanted it to, or I don't see the fruit from the ministry or from the prayers or from the things that I'm doing, even when I don't feel that, I remember I'm enough because God says I'm enough. And I don't have to prove that to anyone, including myself. And so there's power in these affirmations because they remind us whose we are and they remind our enemy whose we are. And Wiersbe also comments on verse 2 and and says, it is our regular worship that prepares us for the crisis experience of life. It's our regular worship that prepares us for the crisis experiences of life. That what we do day in and day out, and worship is not just Sunday morning from 10.30 to 11.30 or 11.40 if Pastor Mark goes a little long. Worship is what we do day in and day out to strengthen our faith in God. Worship is what we do that says, I value you. You have worth in my life. You are worth my time. You are worth my energy. You are worth my attention. We say that to God every day when we open our Bibles, when we get on our knees to pray, when we serve somebody in love, when we experience fellowship with somebody. Those are all things that we do in order to express our worship, and it is our regular worship that prepares us for the crisis experiences of life. Now, verse 3 and 4 represent decisions of the will that David is making here. We see this. He says, because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. He's saying, I'm going to do this. I'm making a commitment. I'm not going to wait and see if I feel like it. I'm deciding that this is a part of what I do. It's a part of what I do every day. I was listening to a writer, and somebody asked, how did you become such a great writer? He said, I decided to write every single day. I get up and I write, whether it's good or whether it's bad. Whether I have something I think is worth writing about or not, I get up and I write. And that was a writer who's now published 20 books, and 19 of them have hit the New York Times bestsellers list because he made a decision. He's like, I decided that I was not going to decide whether or not to write on a daily basis. I decided once and for all, I'm going to write every single day. And I get up and I write. 
every single day, so I don't have to revisit that decision. And we can make similar decisions, similar commitments, as David does, that every day we're going to praise God. Every day we're going to spend time in His Word. Every day we're going to spend time in prayer. Every day. And then we don't have to decide. Oh, I don't feel like it today. It doesn't matter. I decided before that I'm going to do this, and I'm not going to let it be based on my, dis- my feelings, my emotions. And just this morning, I read something from one of my favorite uh, authors right now. Her name is Alicia Cholet, and I've, I've mentioned her before. Uh, but she wrote about this exact topic, and I didn't have time to get it on the screens. But she says, basically, when we equate intimacy with God, with a certain set of feelings or emotions then we run the risk that the absence of those feelings or emotions will cause us to doubt God's presence, to doubt the relationship that we have with God. We'll say, did he move? Did I move? Did I mess up? Did I get something wrong? Something must be wrong because I don't feel what I once did. And then she continues, and and this is the part I really want you to catch, when feelings are given the authority to tell us when we are or are not intimate with God, we make faith a hostage of our circumstances. We make faith a hostage of our circumstances if it's all built on emotion, if it's all built on a feeling. But when we choose instead to decide, irrespective of our circumstances, that we are going to pursue God, that we are going to do the things that lead us to Him. Then she says this, spiritual sustainability requires spiritual intentionality. Our spirit-empowered wills must take the lead regardless of our emotional states. That if you are in Christ, if you have come to Christ, if you have made Him Lord and Savior, then He has promised to give you the gift of His Holy Spirit. And our Spirit-empowered wills take the lead when our emotional state is not leading us to God. We say, my will, I have a decision I can make. I can make an act of the will. And sometimes we think, well, I should only worship God when I feel like it. No, you should worship God whether you feel like it or not. You should worship God even when you don't feel like it. In fact, I would say, maybe you've heard the the phrase, pray hardest when it's hardest to pray. I would say worship most when it's hardest to worship. That's when you're really worshiping God, in my opinion, because you don't feel like doing it and you choose to do it anyway. You choose to make it a priority anyway. Not just singing songs, but spending time with God. And so we have these decisions of the will, and it reminded me of another favorite quote of mine that I just shared recently. Uh, It's this quote, this idea that we should write our hurts in the sand, but carve our blessings in stone. We write our hurts in the sand, we carve our blessings in stone. It's as if David is modeling this for us. He's saying, yeah, this is not a fun season of life. I'm in a dry and weary land. I am physically hungry and physically thirsty, and I am spiritually hungry and spiritually thirsty. I'm going to write a little bit about that, verse 1, and then I'm going to move on. I'm going to carve my blessings in stone. I'm going to make some decisions. I'm going to make some commitments, and I'm going to go on the record and say that I will praise God as long as I live. I will raise my hands in His name. And I love this quote because it acknowledges that there is value in recognizing that we have been hurt, recognizing that something bad has happened to us, recognizing that there is pain or there is sorrow or there's regret. We write that in the sand, okay? It doesn't take long to write something in sand, does it? 
It moves very quickly, whether it's wet sand or dry sand. You can write in sand very quickly. And the other thing that's unique about sand is that it's temporary. The wind's going to blow it away. The waves are going to blow it away or wash it away. But instead of just writing our blessings in sand, we carve those in stone. We remember. We set a memorial. We say, this is what's true. These blessings that God has given me, the way that God has been faithful to me. We've seen His power and we've seen His glory. And we carve that into stone. We make those permanent. We let the hurts get washed away or blown away. Now in verse 8, he continues with this trajectory. He says, My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing, my lips will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you throughout the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. He's remembering to remember. He's meditating and reflecting upon. He's deciding that this is going to be a part of his daily life. At night, I will think about you. I will worship you even when I don't feel like it. I'll be satisfied with you when I do. And I wrote on this verse, remembering God satisfies the soul rather than further starving it. You see, when we don't feel like and we let emotion win the day and we don't spend time in God's Word and we don't spend time in prayer and we don't spend time in our journal, it further starves our soul. But when we choose to do that, we can know with confidence that our soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. We can remember to remember. We can meditate and reflect upon. And maybe we don't have the fresh whiz-bang insights that we have when we're on our way up the mountainside with God, but we can still experience the nourishment in our soul. We can still experience God's presence in the midst of those things, whether we feel like it or not. I was reminded that the book of Deuteronomy has a consistent message throughout, and that message is remember, remember, remember. Remember God leading you out of Egypt. Remember how He provided for you through the desert. Remember the water from the rock. Remember the manna in the morning. Remember the quail that landed. Remember, remember, remember. And then as Joshua prepares to take the mantle of leadership from Moses, at the very beginning of Joshua, Joshua 1, verses 7 through 9, God says, Be strong and courageous and keep this book of the law and meditate on it every single day. And then he continues, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. I think that was a a lesson. Be strong and courageous. Meditate on the word of the Lord every day. That's how you're going to maintain that strength. That's how you're going to sustain strength and courage as you lead the people to take over the promised land. And then the commandment to be strong and courageous follows it. And so we sing to And we cling to God alone as David gives us the example here, just like he did in Psalm 62, which we looked at last week, when he says, my soul finds rest in God alone, in God alone. So we pray hardest when it's hardest to pray, and we worship most when we feel like it the least. And then verses 9 through 11, he he takes a little bit of a detour, but I think there's even a spiritual lesson for us there. In verses 9 and 10, I feel like he gets off track a little bit. He said, those who seek my life will be destroyed. They'll go down to the depths of the earth. They'll be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. And sometimes you just have to comfort yourself with your enemy's demise a little bit, right? Sometimes you just have to say, well, you know, it doesn't look good right now. The halftime score ain't very pretty, but we know how the game 
ends. We know who wins. We know how the story ends. It's right here in the pages of Scripture for us. And he concludes with verse 11, but the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God's name will praise him while the mouths of the liars will be silenced. And I believe he's reminding himself whose team he's on. He's reminding himself that he knows how the story ends. He knows who wins. And I think this is critical to understand that David is not waiting to see if God will deliver him. He's watching to see how God will deliver him. And in your darkest moments, if you have faith and hope and trust in Jesus Christ, regardless of your feelings, regardless of your emotions, you can remind yourself as David does, hey, I'm on the winning team. This is going to turn out okay. Yeah, the next season of life looks a little crummy, or maybe even the remainder of my life doesn't look good. I've got a chronic or a terminal health condition. And you can say, yeah, this earthly life is filled with toil and trouble and struggle, but eternity looks really, really good for those of us who are in Christ. Eternity looks really, really good, and we know how the story ends. And so he reminds himself, and you can remind yourself that you're not waiting to see if God is going to deliver you. You're watching to see how God is going to deliver you. And I also mentioned, I think there's a little bit of a spiritual lesson for us in verses 9 and 10 as David thinks about his enemies. He had real physical enemies, whether it was Saul or whether it was Absalom or whether it was other people. And you, throughout the course of your life, will probably pick up an enemy or two that is another human being that is trying to bring you down. But there is a bigger enemy that stands behind them. There is a bigger enemy and a more real enemy that is seeking to bring you down every minute of every day. And Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Right before he talks about the armor of God, he talks about who our real enemy is. And he says in Ephesians 6, 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against the person that is opposing you or your adversary saying it's really against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. He's talking about the devil. He's talking about Satan and those that are loyal to Satan who are seeking to bring us down. You have an enemy. Your marriage has an enemy. Your children have enemy in the person or the the reality of Satan and those that fight with Satan to bring down the people of God. And so knowing who we're fighting against helps a lot. Knowing who's standing behind the person that presents themselves as our enemy helps a lot. And we know who wins. We can read all about it in the final pages of Scripture, the last overthrow and the casting down into the lake of fire of the demons and all those who were loyal to Satan and establishing a new kingdom, a new heaven, a new earth where there is no crying, there is no sorrow, there is only joy and light forever and ever. It's as if... Remembering that in those moments when we don't feel like we're victorious, in those moments where we feel like we're getting our butts kicked, is really, really helpful. Even when we're discouraged, even when we're depressed. And so we see David work through this, and we see a number of lessons here. And we also see a really good example of this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. There is an example of a group of people who were known for this kind of lifestyle praise and worship, living lives of worship, even in the midst of really difficult circumstances. You see, almost every church that Paul planted, there's, there's persecution that follows to those who had 
chosen to come out from the Gentile population or to come out from the Jewish population and to, to be a part of this new way, they were calling it, the way of Christ, who gave their lives to Christ and who began fellowships that were centered around their faith in Christ. And he writes to them in these letters, and there's right at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians, Paul's writing to a church that he had planted, and he's reminding them what they were known for, letting them know, here's what you're known for. Here's how we remember you. And I chose this passage. It just leapt right off the page for me as I was reading through our Banding Together journal. And if you're not with us on the Banding Together journals, I would really strongly encourage you to pick one of those up today. You can grab them in the, uh, in the lobby. And don't let the $5 donation keep you. If that's a problem, just pick one up, take it, put it on my tab. I don't mind. Uh, we want you to be in that. It's a reading plan. It's an opportunity to journal and to, to spend time in God's Word every day and engage Scripture and ask God, what are you saying to me today? And so as I was going through that, Psalm 63 last Sunday, First Thessalonians 1, I think it was Wednesday or Thursday of this week, it leapt off the page as I read verses 2 and 3 where he says, We always thank God for all of you mentioning you in our prayers. That's a pretty standard introduction to one of his letters. But this is unique to the Thessalonian church. He says, We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And I saw a three-by-three three grid right there. I saw work, labor, and endurance that was produced, prompted, and inspired by faith, love, and hope. And I said, wow, what a great thing to be known for. I want to be known for that. They had been persecuted. They had had trials. They had lost their jobs foreseeably. They had been scoffed at. They had perhaps been beaten for their faith in Christ, and yet Paul writes to remind them, here's what we remember about you. Be encouraged. We remember your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then I was, after I was thinking about that, and I wrote that, I thought, what's the difference between work and labor? Aren't those the same thing? And so I looked them up, and there are actually two different Greek words that are used in that passage. The word that is, we translate as work has more to do with deeds or actions, or maybe you'd just like to add an S to it. Your works, your works prompted by faith, or produced by faith, I should say. And in each case, each of these, it's really just two words. It's literally the work of faith, the labor of love, and the endurance of hope. But when they were making the New International Version, they added words that would help us understand, little, little verbs that would help us to, to read this and to see the flow of this. And so it's, it's literally the deeds produced by our faith. It's the works of our faith. And remind, be reminded that faith is, is not just a feeling. Faith is a decision. It's belief. Belief and faith are both translated from the same Greek word. It means to rely upon, to cling to, to trust in. And remember what David said back in verse 8? He said, I cling to you. I cling to you. My soul clings to you. That's the faith that we're talking about. It's, it's, it goes beyond intellectual assent to relying upon, clinging to, and trusting in God. So your work produced by faith, then your labor prompted by love. Well, the difference between work or works and labor, labor, that word would re refer to laborious toil, to the activity not so much the outcome, which would be the works, but the toil, the laborious toil that is prompted by love. 
and my mind went to childbirth. If you've ever had an opportunity to witness childbirth, or ladies, if you've birthed a child, you know that it is a labor of love, right? It's a labor of love. It's this word that we translate as labor. It's, it's, it's laborious toil leading to weariness and exhaustion. That was the full definition. I thought, well, that's labor. I experienced that. I experienced Heather coming to the wall of utter exhaustion and then continuing in love. And you see parents do this for their children. And you see people that are motivated by agape love. That's the type of love we're talking about here, self-sacrificing love. They go to the point of utter weariness and exhaustion, and then they go beyond it, just like Jesus did for us. That's the labor, the laborious toil that's prompted by love that Paul is talking about, that he witnessed among the people, that he saw among the people. And he recognizes it, and he celebrates it. And lastly, endurance inspired by hope. Endurance is sometimes translated as steadfastness or as patience or as patient endurance or long-suffering. It's a Greek word picture that literally means to bear up courageously under suffering, to bear up courageously under a weight, a difficult weight, to endure, to stay under that weight, to stay under that, even in the face of difficulty, even in the face of resistance to bear up courageously. And I love how the NIV translators added the word inspired. Inspired by hope. Inspired is, inspiration is different than motivation. You see, motivation is externally driven. Inspiration comes internally. To, the word means in spirit. That we have the Holy Spirit. If we are in Christ, if we have made Him Lord and Savior, He's promised us the gift of His Spirit. And that in spirit inspires our endurance because of our hope in Jesus Christ. Our hope, not our wishful thinking, our hope, our confidence in Jesus Christ, in who He is. So whether we feel like it or not, we have hope, we have confidence, we have expectancy. We're not waiting to see if He will deliver us. We're watching to see how He will deliver us, and we are able to endure because of that. And we find that spiritual sustainability where our spirit-empowered wills take the lead regardless of our emotional states. We follow God's spirit. And sometimes people will say something to me as their pastor, and say, this is what I keep hearing, this is what I keep feeling, and I'll say, I don't believe that God's spirit is saying that to you. That doesn't resonate with anything that God's spirit is credited for saying or showing to his people in here. I think, I think there's discouragement. I think there's an enemy. I think there's something that is telling you to quit, telling you to give up, telling you you're disqualified for ministry, telling you you'll never make it back, you'll never make amends. I'll say, I don't, that doesn't sound like the spirit of God. That sounds like the spirit of the enemy. And I'd encourage you to just rebuke him. Tell him whose you are and remind yourself whose you are. And before we leave this little passage of two verses, I was thinking about that faith, hope, and love, and I thought, I've heard those three in connection before, and a few of you have already gotten there, and you're thinking, yeah, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, right? Remember the last wedding you went to? They probably told you love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast. Well, the very end of that chapter, in verse 13, Paul writes, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these, the greatest of these is love. The greatest of these is agape. It's self-sacrificial love. And so I would ask you, which of these do you need the most? 
Do you need more faith? Do you need more love? Do you need more hope? Do you need to just roll up your sleeves and go to work and to stay under and to allow God's love, which was shed, or which was poured out for you in the shed blood of Christ to motivate you, to inspire you, to encourage you to endure and to build some momentum. I struggled a little bit with the bottom line for this, and, and I, I didn't want something that just resonated for me. I wanted something that would resonate for everybody, and I recognize we're not all the same temperament. We don't all have the same personality, and so I wrestled with it a little bit, but I decided the bottom line here is that when feelings fade, double down on discipline, on your spiritual disciplines, on the activities, the actions that are guaranteed to produce fruit in your life. Double down on Bible reading and prayer and journaling. Double down on discipline because when feelings fade, and they will inevitably fade, my counselor tells me at least every other session, if not every session, Mark, nothing is chronically motivating. Nothing is chronically motivating. Nothing is going to motivate you forever the way that it did at one time. Nothing is chronically motivating. Nothing always feels fresh forever. It eventually starts to feel a little stale. And so when that happens, when feelings fade, double down on discipline. Double down on the habits. Don't think about discipline as a bad thing. One of my favorite quotes, when I remind myself often, when I don't feel like doing something, when I don't feel like cracking open my Bible, when I don't feel like prepping a sermon, when I don't feel like doing an extra service, or I don't feel like doing all the wonderful things, I would love to stand here and tell you, oh, I always feel like it. I always just can't wait to go and do it. Sometimes I get tired. Sometimes I get, I just want to be alone. I don't want to do anything for anybody. Maybe you can resonate with that. Maybe you're aghast. You can't believe that that's the case. But I'll just be honest with you. I remind myself that discipline is choosing what you value most over what you want now. Discipline is choosing what you value most. And I have decided, and it's not up for debate, that I value him most. And I value my relationship with him most, whether I feel like it or not. And so I choose to do what I value most over what I want now, David modeled it for us. The Thessalonians were known for it. And it is within our reach. Spiritual disciplines that are what I'm talking about when I say double down on disciplines. I'm talking about activities and actions that deepen your soul and strengthen your spirit. Double down on those even when, especially when, you don't feel like it. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example from David. We thank you for the connections that Paul made about the church in Thessalonica. We thank you for the invitation that you have for us, that even when we don't see it, you're working. Even when we don't feel it, you're working. The reminder, the assurance that you never stop. You never stop working. Help us, Lord, to develop a, a spiritual sustainability that when the feelings fade, and they inevitably will, that we would double down on the disciplines. We would double down on the activities that deepen our soul and strengthen our spirit. And trust that the feelings will return. Trust that you're a good God, that you love us, that you'll meet us in our dry seasons. You'll meet us in a dry and weary land. And you'll satisfy us. We thank you, Lord. Have your way in us now as we respond to you in worship. In Jesus' name we pray.